Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 416th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting across the world in this our ninth year from our studios today on the shores of Sydney Harbour overlooking the Harbour Bridge and the fabulous Sydney Opera House. I'm giving a presentation tomorrow night in Melbourne to the Entertainment Technology Conference and I'm really looking forward to that. A whole room full of very bright, young, nerdy people. I love it. On the 14th our flight over from Los Angeles to Sydney, I was thinking about the four worst reasons to start a business. So I thought I'd tell you what these four lousy reasons are. The first one is following your passion. First thing you've got to think about is, is it also everybody else's passion? Following your passion usually leads to an expensive hobby that keeps costing you money. Um... In my experience, most of the people who have done something to follow their passion have failed. The second one is finding a need and filling it. You know, I found a need. Well, guess what? In today's first world, there aren't any more needs. Every single thing that has a need has has been filled. There's only wants. You know, I want this, I want that. So if you find that need you'll probably find it's not needed. Excuse the pun. Now, upgrades of existing ideas are another thing. Third awful reason to go into business is doing something that you don't know anything about. Is a, I see a gap in the brain surgery market, so I think I'll uh, go into the brain surgery business if you don't know even what somebody's head looks like. Um, it's a recipe for failure. To make money, you have to be an absolute expert in your field. Being half-assed or half-knowledged just won't cut it. The fourth dreadful reason for uh, starting a business and or that people do when they start a business is borrowing money to start. People borrow a heap of money to start their business. And we know from all the records and the surveys and the history that over 97% of all businesses will fail. So you've got a 97% chance that um, you're not going to be able to repay your loans and people are going to come after you. So they're the four lousy reasons. Now, starting and running a business is pretty overwhelming, really. You need to be able to wear many hats, just what people don't think about. Um, And many of those hats are pretty specialised. If you want to make your business successful, you need to know about a whole range of things. And uh, you need to know about marketing, accounting, legal, sales, HR. You have need to have people skills and negotiating skills if you want to build a good business. So being a business owner is not for absolutely everybody. You need to, um, you need to have good, talented people in each of those roles. So until you can do that, you know, you're going to struggle and you want to put those people on as fast as you possibly can. So most people think that um, starting in business, well, most people who start in business have a technician mentality. 
they think they can take their skill set and turn it into a business. You know, they think, oh, running my own business, I don't have to take directions from a boss. I can work my own hours. I can, um, you know, I've got much more time to, for life work balance and I get to keep all the money. I don't have to take a bit of what the boss is earning. But this is so far from the truth. It's actually so far from the truth that it's bloody absurd. You know, it's really hard to get a business off the ground, and that's why 97, 90% of businesses fail. If you do get it off the ground, it's a whole lot harder to keep it there. Most people simply don't have the discipline and the resilience to break the barrier. You know, if you start up a business, even if you're the only person doing it, um, six months in, there'll be other people doing it other competitors, and they'll be working out ways to be better than whatever you came up with. So you need to constantly be on the improvement. If you're trying to run the business and be the sales guy and and um, look after the books and try to work through all the legal situations, then you're going to fail. It is just too fucking hard. And a lot of people think that um, if you have a website and an Amazon seller account, you're going to start raking in millions. But it doesn't work that way. It takes a lot of work to even know that you've failed. Now, with the digital age, you can find anything in two clicks. And uh, if I get on, do my two clicks now, and I can have it in my house tomorrow. But because of clutter, it's harder and harder and harder to get noticed. People, and people are getting busier by the minute. As a result, they turn off notices for marketers. You know, I've just been through my emails. I've got hundreds of them. And if it looks like it's trying to sell me something, it's gone. It doesn't even get a look in. Everybody's too busy, so you've got to find a different way to get to people. And unfortunately, most businesses run out of money before they reach market acceptance. No matter how brilliant your idea is, if you have no money left in the bank to promote it, you're out. You're done. So keep these things in mind. No one, not even family and close friends, admires your audacity to start a company. I'm sure if you've started a company, the first thing you get from relatives is, you're an idiot. Why don't you get a regular job and a steady income and, you know, have income security? Well, even if you get a job, you don't have any income security. The, old, the days of having a job and keeping it forever are over. So you might as well start a business, just be prepared to do it. No amount of reading or advice can prepare you for the real thing. You know, I know people that have done degrees and, um, you know, MBAs and whatever else think that they're prepared for the marketplace, but they're not. I mean, you're going to be hit countless times from every possible direction imaginable. It is war out there. It is amazing what people do to succeed in business. And unless you get off to the same start with the same attitude, you're dead. Now, most people start companies in the pursuit of personal independence. Now, whether, trust me, I've been in lots of businesses, whether you're successful or whether you're failing, the business becomes your cell. You're a prisoner. And you think you can take a weekend off or a week off, something goes wrong, you're in the office. 
You know, it's just the way it works. And you have to know, you know, the most important thing about having a business, no matter what it is, is you've got to sell somebody something, which means you've got to know about, and not only know, but to know a hell of a lot about traditional marketing and social marketing. And you need to have great social marketing skills, or you need to hire someone who does. You have to master the ability to connect your product or service with the potential customer. If you can't do that, you're screwed. And if you start a business with the goal of getting rich, that's going to screw you too. You've got to be profit-oriented. I mean, everything you do, you've got to work out that you've got to make money. But don't have money as the ultimate goal because you lose sight of being successful. Listen to what the market's saying. Just because you personally love your product, that won't get you very far. People vote with their money. So you've got to pay close attention to what your market's telling you. And if there's something they don't like or something they'd like improved or your customer service is not good or whatever it is, you've got to improve it. Remember that every successful company out there, no matter how big, started out small and local. Think about Microsoft. You know, a lot of you um, that are listening to the show weren't even born when Microsoft started and probably don't know. Microsoft started in a garage of a just a regular house and they set up Microsoft in the, in the garage. They did some cute things. They used to have an answering system where you'd phone into the garage and there was two people in there and you'd phone into the garage and, and you'd get the, thank you for ringing Microsoft. How can I direct your call? You know, and it's for sales or whatever, you'd they'd direct the call over to the one other phone and whoever answered it would say, say, sales department. So when you rang Microsoft in the garage with two staff, you thought there was a staff of 15. And uh, they did very well with that. The last one I'm going to talk about is don't fall in love with your product or service. Fall in love with your customers. It's your customers that are going to pay you. It's the customers that are going to make you profitable. And... Uh, if you love your customers and serve them really well, you you will be fine. So that's my entrepreneurial experience advice. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've got about 1.7 or 1.8 million daily subscribers and about 34% or 35% of them open it. So I don't know. I don't know what that is. I've never worked it out. It's probably about 700,000 people read it every day. And it takes about 30 seconds to 60 seconds a day. We tackle a different subject every day from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology, hyperloops, cryptocurrency, um, autonomous cars, and all sorts of other things. So you should get it. If you want to stay ahead, then you should get my newsletter. Tomorrow's newsletter, incidentally, is about Apple. Did, did you know that Apple has now killed off iTunes? A lot of people don't know, and a hell of a lot of people use iTunes, but um, Apple's killed it off. There's no more iTunes. iTunes is dead. If you want to know more about the story, then go to the Bob Pritchard newsletter. It's the one media vehicle every day that you can really trust for the latest up-to-date information. So, and if you want to subscribe and you'd be an idiot if you didn't, simply go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and subscribe. One of the things I didn't know is that in America, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in America, when a patient is homeless, 
hospitals are legally prohibited from discharging patients who don't have a home to go to. And so if you're homeless and you get treated at a hospital, then the hospital's on the hook for keeping you. And they do it at great cost. So hospitals are starting to invest in real estate and building their own housing units as a matter of a way of addressing homelessness and improving patient outcomes. And it also cuts their cost considerably. You know, one night patients stay at a hospital costs about $2,700 to $3,000. And patients who have nowhere to go spend an average of 73 nights. That's a total cost of almost $200,000 to keep a homeless person who's perfectly cured. Meanwhile, patients with acute conditions sometimes spend days in the ER waiting for a bed to open. So what's happening is health firms are partnering with housing authorities to renovate old buildings into affordable senior housing. They have apartments designated as transitional units for homeless people. Hospitals will cover the housing costs, which cost about $10,000 a year. So that saves an enormous amount of money for the, for the healthcare. And the country's biggest managed care provider, Kaiser Permanente, has pledged up to $200 million to build low-cost housing to help them with the homeless problem. Okay, my guest today is, is Niall Dennehy. He's the co-founder and CEO of Aid Tech. Now, this is very cool use of, tech, of, of blockchain. Aid Tech was the first company in the world to deliver international aid using blockchain technology. It's a very interesting interview. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with you from Sydney, Australia, and with Niall in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. This is where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people. We talk about what they do and their successes. We, find it, we try to find out about the challenges they face. And I guess at the bottom of it all, we try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, somewhere around 97 or 98% of all new businesses today fail. 
So what is it that makes that 2% that succeed different than the 98% that fail? I mean, most of the people who have a startup have a good product, maybe not a great product, but have a good product that deserves to um, at least enjoy some success, but they don't. So what is it? Is it the um, is it luck? Is it the um, guidance of the entrepreneur? Have they got some gene that the rest of us don't have? Because it is extremely difficult to create a successful business. We all need all the help we can. So that's why it's important to have mentors. If you don't have a mentor, you're crazy. You should surround yourself with people who know what they're doing, who have done it before. It will save you making a shitload of mistakes, trust me. And you need to take on board the advice that you get from people like my next guest who have been successful several times. So take on board that advice and it will definitely help you. My guest today, Noel Dennehy, I'm speaking to him in Ireland. I don't know whether you've been to Dublin. Great place. I've been up there quite a few times giving speeches. I love it. And Niall is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Aid Tech. Now, they've got offices all over the world. I hadn't heard of them before, but they've got offices all over the planet and they're very successful. They were the first company in the world to deliver international aid using blockchain technology. When you think about blockchain, it makes sense. And uh, I think I've mentioned before, I'm doing an ICO in Africa where we're doing pretty much the same, well, <laughs> we're delivering we're delivering aid and we're using the blockchain. That's probably where the similarity finishes. But Niall founded the company in response to the need for transparency and donor engagement. You know, a lot of, uh, there's not much transparency often. And Niall's vision is to position aid tech, it's just A-I-D, T-E-C-H, as a company that can be profitable as well as a company that is socially responsible. And I think that's that's got to be a good business in this world. Aid Tech's platform enables entitlements like aid and welfare and remittances and donations and healthcare to be digitised and transparently delivered to end users through digital ID and blockchain technology, totally transparent. So... And listen to this. AidTech is the current global winner of the City Tech for Integrity Challenge. They received the James Wolfenson Game Changer Award for companies using technology to fight corruption, and they got that at the international from the International Monetary Fund. They were also recent winners of the Smart Dubai Blockchain Challenge in 2018, and they're IBM's number one global startup and MasterCard's company of the year. That is a phenomenal record. Really brilliant. Now, prior to his work at AidTech, Niall previously co-founded and led the design and development of numerous award-winning apps and platforms, such as Imprez and PrezX. Niall also held senior technology positions in organisations such as HP, Ericsson and LG. So the guy's obviously no idiot, right? Pretty smart. Hi, Niall. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Bob, it, it's an absolute pleasure to be on the show. And that is by far, bar none, the best intro that I have ever gotten. We like to think that we've invent, we've uh, we've perfected the art of pitching, but I dare say, Bob, that you've perfected the art of preaching. Bob Pritchard, pr- uh, Pritcher Supreme. Uh, great to be here, and uh, thank you very much, Bob. It's a pleasure. You could be anywhere in the world. You've got offices around the world. You could be anywhere in the world. Why do you want to be in a cold, obviously you're Irish, but why do you want to be in a cold, <laughs> miserable place like Dublin? Uh, we, we see, Bob, we think we're like we're, we're an island. We're out on our own. But we're never on our own. But Dublin, um, Dublin right now, Bob, we did chat beforehand and you told me about LA, about how great it is a place to start. We think Dublin is like the new London. It's a little. It's like London on a smaller scale. It's more competitive. It's a better place to set up a business. There's a really great ecosystem developing here. Uh, we're backed by the Irish government. We are, in fact, one of uh, the first blockchain company in the world to be backed by two governments. That being both Singapore, that being Ireland. So we've got the weight of a government of two governments behind us. We're a blockchain company. One of the governments happens to be our own. Uh, but you, Dublin is a great place to set up a company. Um, it's much cheaper than London. We're within the European Union. Um, the fintech scene right here, right now, it's really happening. It's a really hot market to be in. Um, but despite the weather, which we're having our best summer in 40 years at the moment, it's generally a great place to live, great place, great place to bring up a family, but ultimately then a very good place to grow a company. Yeah, but it sounds like it. Well, it's got a lot in common with Ireland, hasn't it? I mean, with England, I mean, with London, it's cold and it's wet. Um, <laughs> no, but it's, it's great that... Well, we um, like to think the people might be a little bit more cheery, but that's no disrespect to anybody from England who is listening uh, from London. But uh, uh, we think the people make all the difference, and we're, we're very proud uh, Irish people over here. But the people really would be... Um, I often say, Bob, the best thing and the worst thing about Ireland is the people. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, it's great that it's developed into such a big technology hub. How how long's that been taking? How long has that been taking place? It's, it's probably taken a little bit longer, Bob, than it would, than we would have liked. But really, I think, um, ironically, since we had the Great Recession in in Ireland back in two thousand and eight, we were probably hit worse than any other country within the European Union. Arguably, us and Greece. Where it were affected the most, given that we're a large or small, we're a dynamic economy. But uh, you would be surprised, Bob. And even aid tech, which I can talk about shortly, we were formed partly because of the uh, you know the Great Recession. I'll, I'll tell you more about that later on. But really, Bob, a lot of people, including uh, people that I know myself included, set up businesses in the midst of the uh, the so-called Great Recession. Yeah. And really, since then, whatever it is that we think Irish people, we respond pretty well to adversity. And oftentimes, it takes a crisis really for us to respond. And uh, that's what people are doing. But a lot of the people I know who've created the best companies in Dublin at the moment right now, they've come out of either losing their job in the recession, sure. seeing an opportunity that wasn't there before, um, and it was a good time to start a business, but really I think things have changed a lot in the past 10 years and we've got a really um, strong momentum right now. And the fact that we're in the European Union, we're starting to see a lot of companies from uh, from, from Britain, they're coming here um, in anticipation of what may happen with Brexit coming down the line. Yep. Um, we're seeing a lot of positive stuff happening in Dublin today. So how did A-Tech begin? You're in the middle of a recession and... You know, everything around you is falling apart. You just sort of woke up at 2 o'clock one morning and went, aha, I've got an idea. How did it come about? (laughs) 
I'll tell you how it came about, Bob. It's, it's mainly down to my, my good friend, my co-founder. I tell people he is the, the inspiration of, person, of determination. He personifies what it is to be in a startup. But my good friend and my co-founder, Joe, uh, in the midst of the recession, he uh, still had the get up and the go to run a marathon, which was 151 miles long through the Moroccan desert, something called the Marathon des Sables. Um, the guy collapsed on day two. He collapsed again on day three. He still got up. He ran the marathon. But uh, to cut the story a little bit shorter, Bob, he raised a big, big sum of money for the marathon that he ran back in 2009 through the desert. Um, one person who gave him a lot of money back uh, in 2009 was a wealthy uh, philanthropist based here in Dublin. Uh, he managed to find a big chunk of change to give Joe to run the marathon. Uh, but that same guy came to Joe about six months after the Marathon de Sabla and said, are you able to tell me where my money went? What was it spent on? Uh, Joe wasn't able to do that. So it played on his mind a bit. Um, and we always tell people, look, we weren't you know, humanitarians by default, but we've become humanitarians. But we, uh, we also are in this to make a profit. But Joe then uh, started toying with, uh, you know, with Bitcoin. Uh, we read the white paper around the same time it came out, heard about Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, and Joe then happened to get interested uh, somewhat later, around the year 2011. He started doing a, uh, a master's degree in the University of Nicosia, Cyprus. Wow. They were one of the countries that were hit by a bail-in by the European Union. Um, money was being taken out of people's accounts. Um, and Joe was literally getting the pieces bound in Dublin. And a really shrewd guy here helping him to do that said, you know what, I think the real innovation with this Bitcoin and blockchain technology, it's not the anonymity that people think it brings, but it is the, uh, the transparency. And that same guy helping him to bind the thesis runs a charity where people cycle um, all the way from Dublin uh, over towards Chernobyl in, uh, in Belarusia yeah. to help children suffering from, um, you know, who suffered from the nuclear fallout. And he said, you know what, I think the innovation with this Bitcoin, with this blockchain is traceability. We had an idea then that could we apply the technology that we got quite interested in in a real life scenario on the ground in a really tough place and could we use the technology to trace the same donations. So if Joe was to run the Marathon de Sabla all over again, which he plans to do again, the, the crazy guy that he is, in about a year's time, would he be able to tell people definitively where the money went? And that's the technology that we've built. We're enabling people to do that right now today. I guess it's handy when you're starting up a new business to be in business with a nutcase. <laughs> why, would, why would somebody decide to run a 150-mile marathon? I mean, anybody that's got well, their you, marbles together. <laughs> you might be right about that. And I'm probably a bit of a nutcase myself, Bob, in that I've done Ironman triathlons in your good country, Australia. The first one that I did was back in 2009 in a beautiful place called Port Macquarie. Yeah. Um, I've done numerous marathons, but we like the challenge really that they bring. It sounds like a cliche, but uh, we, we probably, uh, I may seem a bit calmer on the surface than Joe would be, but I think we both have, let's say, one too many marbles missing now at this stage. And I think you kind of need to, to be like that in order to run a, you know, a startup and especially one in a, you know, with a technology like blockchain, which is pretty nascent. And there aren't really many scalable, demonstrable, you know, applications of the tech. And, you know, people are saying there never will be. It depends. But we thought, look, we've got enough marbles missing that we filter out the noise. We stick to what we need to do. And um, it, it just seems to filter out noise, this, the lack of marbles. So 
probably a good thing. And I think something that a lot of entrepreneurs do have in common, regardless of where they are, be it in Silicon Valley or LA where you are or Australia, they've all got a few marbles loose. Yeah, I think um, if you've got the discipline to run a 150-mile marathon, um, you know, it takes discipline and perseverance and so does a startup. Um, and you've got to overcome all sorts of adversities in both. So tell me sort of step by step, how does this technology work? Why use blockchain? Can't you just use a pen and pad like other people? <laughs> you could do. Um, and again, I'll give you an example, Bob, of the, the very first thing that we did. It was back in Lebanon in uh, 2015. So um I talked a little bit about the technology, but basically, Bob, we came up with this idea that we would try and bring transparency to a market that was a little bit opaque. Yes, um, the reason that we called the company Aid Tech is that you've heard of FinTech, you've heard of CleanTech, you've heard of RegTech. We wanted to invent a new industry. Um, we took a lot of inspiration from um, uh, a guy called Peter Thiel. You and me yes. briefly spoke about him, um, yes. moving to your the city that you're in right now, L.A., Etc. But one of the things that Peter Thiel said uh, when he made the investment in Facebook, that was, you know, competition is for losers, as he said in his book, um, From Zero to One. Yep. And that if you want to do something big, you really have to monopolize the market. So we were driven by a few different things. We said, number one, we wanted to make an impact. Number two, we wanted to make some money. Number three, we wanted to um, have fun doing it. And um, number four, then we didn't want to have a boss. We didn't want to really report into one because of all those marbles that you spoke about being missing means that you're probably not cut out then for dealing with uh, with bosses and what they uh, you know how they how they deal with uh, you know uh, things yeah. so we uh, we had this idea we thought look let's try and bring transparency to aid according to uh, Ban Ki-moon the former sec gen of the United Nations about 30% of aid goes missing each year we thought that's a big market the, the 27 richest countries in the world they give out 160 billion dollars in aid each year. So if you do a quick calculation, that means that about 48 billion dollars in aid each year goes missing. So it's a big market. So with that in mind, we said, okay, what we've got to do is prove that we've got tech that can actually work. We want to prove then that uh, this blockchain technology can work in a really tough environment. So we had an idea that we would approach uh, a charity, and the charity in this case are the NGOs. They might be classified was. The Red Cross, they're based here in Dublin, and a really visionary guy who saw the potential of the technology when um, my co-founder Joe really pitched it to him, was that we have this technology, um, it's basically a plastic card with a QR code on it. What you can do is you can send an entitlement to an individual anywhere in the world without restriction, and they can obtain something in return. They can obtain a good a product or a service. And you would basically then be able to show your donors, who would be people like Coca-Cola, you know, multinationals, the Irish government, the US government, where money is going. So what we did then was we ran a project on the ground, a pilot at the time back in 2015, the first ever example of blockchain technology being used for impact. We like to tell people that we invented impact on the blockchain. That's become something very trendy right now. But we ran a project where we gave plastic cards with the QR code on them. The QR code then was a blockchain wallet address. Sure. And we gave them to uh, Syrian refugees, 500 of them, in a refugee camp in Lebanon. And then what we did is we enabled refugees to use the entitlements that were sent to each card to buy products from a shop. And then basically what they could do is they could, they can, they could obtain anything that they wanted. That could be food, that could be water, that could be toiletries. And we found oftentimes what they were purchasing, Bob, were things like toiletries, like diapers, 
you know, hair removal kits, sanitary products, um, deodorant, etc., because we gave people the freedom to purchase what they want. But ultimately what was happening was back in Dublin, uh, Danny, the guy that we spoke about from yeah. the Red Cross, the head of fundraising, he was able to see in real time what was happening on the ground in, uh, in Lebanon uh, with our technology and that people were getting the entitlements that they should. He was able to show that in real time to his funders that the, the money that you spent, here's where it's going. Not necessarily who was, who was obtaining the product or the good because we want to ensure that people's privacy is protected, but that with this blockchain, because it's immutable, because it's permanent, because it's tamper-proof, you can uh, irrefutably say that your donation was spent in Lebanon by a person to buy a product. And if you believe, like we do, that blockchain is this immutable, um, it's tamper-proof, corrupt sure. ledger, which cannot be changed, that it is arguably then, we believe, one of the few use cases where it makes complete sense to use blockchain. But what we realized then, Bob, was that the real big thing, um, it wasn't just a one-off project that we, uh, we wanted to do, but that there were 2.4 billion people in the world, including the refugees in Lebanon, who didn't have any form of identity. But by giving these people an identity, you can then send things like welfare, remittances, aid, donations, healthcare entitlements. I can talk a little bit more about that shortly uh, to them um, anywhere in the world. And you give them power over their own identity. You enable them to build up a profile, like a credit profile, a credit history. And for people then like Danny, who I keep going back to at the Red Cross, he then can build up a more accurate picture of what's happening on the ground in even the most remote locations. And that would enable people like Danny and the people that he works with in the supply chain for these big NGOs to better plan how they target, uh, target and send goods to people on the ground. Because as I mentioned then, one of the things that Danny found out on the ground was that people there in Lebanon were obtaining toiletries and sanitary products more than what they expected, which would have been food and water and rice, etc., so they knew then that if they were to buy these products in bulk, they would be better serving the people that they were they were reaching. But before blockchain came along, before digital identity came along, it was really hard to figure out what was really being consumed on the ground um, by these people. That's extraordinary because I think I I'm, can think of probably a dozen examples of of areas where um, this technology would be suited. Absolutely, perfectly, because once it's it's like the United States government, they give um, they go into a country and they give the military massive quantities of cash, which they just dole out, and they don't know whether um, the people that they've given it to are now living a life of luxury in Bermuda or something, or whether who they've given <laughs> the money to, and it's a great scam, yeah. and this this eliminates that. I think the most the most appealing part of this, from my point of view, is they know what people are buying and therefore can either try to get donations of those products to give or can actually direct to the people exactly what they need rather than guessing. They can, Bob. And one really good example, it's another project that we did recently and it's very similar to what you mentioned there. It was with a Dutch um, NGO. They're called Farm Access. They're based yes. in, um, in the Netherlands. Sure. But what we've done with them is something that we believe is one of the most powerful um, applications of the technology anywhere in the world. And this isn't theory. It's not hype. We've delivered with them. 
Uh, but to give you an idea there, it's, it's much like what you described with the, with the U.S. military, except you were replacing soldiers with uh, pregnant women, if you want to plant that, uh, that mental image in your head. <laughs> but we are, the, at, the, at the moment, uh, we're distributing medical entitlements to pregnant women over blockchain technology uh, using a smart contract. Um, so to give you an idea and to try and paint a picture, there is a clinic in a town called Kilwa. It's about five, a five-hour drive from the capital of uh, Tanzania, Dar es Salaam. Um, but we spoke with the, with the, the NGO. I did a presentation back in, in Amsterdam last October. I met a very visionary lady called uh, Teresa de Sanctis at the, at the presentation. She heard me speak about identity and a lot of people being ide- unidentified. And she said, look, we've been looking for a solution now for quite a while that can harness um, identity uh, and it can distribute entitlements to the people that we deal with. So we are now up and running. Uh, in a clinic, which is in this town that I spoke of, Kilwa, five hours away from Dar es Salaam. Uh, to paint the picture, Bob, what happened before in this clinic was uh, the pregnant women, they're given a booklet when they come to the clinic uh, for the first visit. It's written in Swahili. And each time they, have, they obtain their entitlement, that could be their prenatal care, that could be the postnatal care, that could be the antenatal care, uh, tests that a pregnant woman would get or the drugs that she would be given, like iron tablets, um, etc. folic acid. It was a completely paper-based process and a right. doctor or midwife would scan, they were literally write on the piece of paper and that piece of paper is taken away then um, three months after the, the, the babies are born, hopefully very healthily and that's then taken to a data processing center in Dar es Salaam and then it's inputted into a system and then the government and the people who fund those projects are able to look at the data uh, usually three months after that happened, and they can see what happened, and that would be if the information was entered correctly. But what we did there, Bob, was we've given the women on the ground an A-Tech digital identity, uh, and it, again, it's a QR code, which can either be appended to that same booklet or it can be put on a plastic card. And what they do then is they go to the midwife. The midwife scans the card, uh, the QR code. She can see who that individual is and what entitlements that they are entitled to get on a particular day. And what we're doing is we're saying that, okay, the ideal path for a pregnant woman is at week three, she gets the following entitlements. Week six, she gets these. So we've programmed the smart contract. We've created digital assets representing things like nabendazole, folic acid, ferrosulfate, the iron tablet, and they're being sent automatically to the women who hold these identities. So when they go to the midwife or to the doctor, he knows that, okay, they have received these entitlements and I will administer them at the, um, you know, at the clinic. And then that ultimately that means that the NGO and the people who fund them uh, in real time can see on the ground, you know, are the women getting the right treatment? And the thing that we found, Bob, uh, there was that that particular clinic they were lacking um they were lacking iron tablets the the hemoglobin machine was broken that was something that we were tracking to and the women weren't getting enough of the drug called nabendazole so the really startling thing and the thing that we were really delighted about was that the local health district officer who was able to view this data said look we have to get more iron tablets to this clinic in kilwa because the women aren't getting the correct entitlements and they were able to make that decision based on the data that was generated on the blockchain, and they could see it in real time. And then when the women came back for their uh, their following visits, they were able to see that, okay, now everybody's getting the entitlements that they should. And the only re- way, uh, or the reason that happened was because the real-time data generated on the blockchain, because we link the entitlements to an identity, we send them out over a smart contract. 
meant that we we have created what we believe is something truly groundbreaking. And we're about to scale that up now to uh, 60,000 women in uh, 60 clinics in the next uh, uh, three months. And the, the ambition there is to get that to 1 million women within Africa, which we believe we can do with the partners that we have. And we've proven demonstrably on the ground with technology that this does work. And it's not just theory, it's not hype, it's a working product. Um, and again, that's one example of what we've done to welfare, entitlements. Uh, I can talk a little bit more about them with the other partners that we work with, like remittances with the United Nations in Serbia. Uh, we're doing another project then. Um, uh, we're going to be kicking off in Albania, in China, with the United Nations Development Program. But like you said, Bob, at the start, as you eloquently put it, we can attach conditions to the entitlements that are delivered to those people. So if our technology was used by the U.S. military, we could send an entitlement to a soldier um, via his or her digital identity, and they could then go to a uh, point of sale or to a dispensary, and they can obtain what they are supposed to, and that's all made fully traceable with an asset on the blockchain. Um, and you can, again, put that conditionality with it so you know that people are getting what they should. That is brilliant. So you need to distribute the plastic cards or whatever it is, and do you also, you'd also need to provide readers. So... Yeah, we, we can do a couple of things, Bob. We can either give people a plastic card, which is, you know, a pretty rare scenario. Yeah. But with the technology now that we have, it's based on, a, it's a web-based app. Yeah. So it can work on any mobile phone with a web browser. Um, we, we've tested it as far back as Android Jelly Bean, which was released in 2012. And that's uh, Android being, a, you know, the, the yeah. common, uh, common sure. operating system around the world, particularly in the developing but we can issue identity in the form of a, either a plastic card or it could be a mobile phone. And when you get the, uh, the web app within your phone, you can go to a section, it's called My ID, and there you will see a QR code and that would represent your identity as it is um, on the blockchain. And we separate in the personal information from the individual, so nothing personal would be stored in the blockchain, but just the uh, transactional information. Sure. Yeah, I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize that even in refugee camps and, and in some of the places that have got hideous conditions around the world, there's a hell of a lot of cell phones. But I guess there's a lot of people that don't have them too. So how do you how do you address that issue? Or, or don't you? This yeah, issue? and we, we do, Bob. And what we do is there is we would rely on the partners that we work with. Um, if you think about the, the reach that some of the, the great partners that we have, people like the United Nations or the Red Cross that they would have, they typically have operations around the world in uh, multiple countries, you know, uh, pretty much every country in the world. So we would partner with them in the case of distribution of plastic cards. We can literally send them, you know, a file that they can print with the QR code. They can then use our technology to assign the identity to an individual. Um, and that can be a matter if you take the example of somebody like an aid worker, they're on the ground. Uh, they can either print the uh, the QR code locally as a sticker. They could put that on a card. It could be pre-printed. They would scan the card with our um, our application. Or the information can be loaded beforehand, and they can distribute that then to the individuals. And the individuals then can use that at the uh, at the the point of sale. That can be with a merchant, with a shopkeeper, with a utility company, with a dispensary. Um, and we would cater for both of them. But uh, for us, ATEC, as you know, a, a relatively small startup, we would rely on the partnerships that we have with the, uh, the big companies um, so that they can take care of the logistics, the program management, the project management, 
And we then focus on what we're good at, which is developing and delivering a blockchain platform for them to uh, piggyback on. Absolutely brilliant idea. So apart from delivery of aid, um, thinking of things like um, entitlements, government entitlements for um, new parents, a lot of companies, countries around the world give bonuses for people to have children and they do all sorts of things. Um, apart from aid, what, what are the other major uses? Yeah, we, we've got quite a few, Bob, and we've, we've, we've deployed all these already. It's not theory, but um, another big one, Bob, at the moment is uh, remittances. So remittances being a, a huge market, it's worth about $460 or million, billion dollars each year. Um, the global average, according to the World Bank, would be 7.6%. So that means if you send $100 from a country like the United States back to a country maybe in Central America, take Guatemala, for example, the fees there could be really high. And generally, the rule of thumb, Bob, is that the the less developed the country is, the higher the fees are. And ironically, then, that's where, you know, the money that's swallowed up by fees is, you know, needed the most. But we are partnering at the moment with uh, the United Nations Development Program, um, uh, a big, another major Asian bank at the moment. And we are running um, projects um, where people are able to send, uh, like you mentioned, one of these entitlements. So to give you an example of what we're doing in Serbia with the United Nations, this is a project that was recently signed off by the, uh, by the, the prime minister, by the, the mayor of a town called Niche. We are enabling the diaspora from a number of different countries. They're able to send um, a conditional entitlement back to their loved ones on the ground in Serbia. Uh, and remittances there is worth about $4 billion a year to the local economy. But what they want to do in line with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals is to ensure that, uh, number one, the remittance fees fall below 3% by the year 2030 and that they eliminate remittance corridors of greater than 5%. But what we're enabling people to do is to send um, a a non-cash-based remittance to an individual on the ground. And again, the key being the digital identity, and then they're able to make a payment to either the gas company or the electricity company or the grocery store with the non-cash-based remittance that they've received to their digital identity. And again, we've managed to bring the fees way down. We've partnered with, uh, with Stripe, um, yep. a payments pr- company, again, started by a couple of Irish guys, now worth about $9 billion based in Silicon Valley. They're called the Collison Brothers. Uh, and we are, we're taking that market on then, and we're going to scale as we speak with that. We're live in a number of countries, and Serbia probably being the, the best example of that technology at the moment. Um, another one, Bob, that we're doing right now, we've got a product called uh, Trace Donate. And if you look up tracedonate.com, what we're enabling uh, members of the public to do is to do peer-to-peer donations from right. one person to another. And the person then on the ground holds an A-Tech digital identity. You can send them a donation in the form of a digital asset. Again, that could be like your utility, your your gas. It could be cash. And we're enabling them then to obtain products from merchants or a good or a service. And then you as a donor get a notification in the form of either an SMS or an email. It's sent to your mobile phone. And I would tell you, Bob, your donation was spent in Lebanon buy person X if they choose to, to reveal their information yeah. to buy a product Y. So again, that's a really big consumer play at the moment. 
and that's something that we've uh, we're deploying right now with the Irish Red Cross. We're going live in the Pacific with another NGO very shortly, and that's a product that's built, it's up and running, it's been deployed. And again, donations is a huge market. And normally what happens with your donation is that it ends up in a big pile and you're reliant then on the NGOs to report back on what happened with manual, paper-based, oftentimes, or a spreadsheet. But with this, bringing in the blockchain, bringing in identity, bringing in the different people and bringing in the digital asset, we can prove that you can show people where their donation was spent and you can make it completely transparent. And that's a really, really big one for us at the moment. It, it's brilliant because it cuts out the middleman who is often the person who makes all the money. It really does. And you spoke, Bob, about the idea of the, uh, the so-called bag of cash. Uh, yes. we, we've got a partnership with the, with a really big bank, and they've told us that, look, we will send money from places like Kenya into South Sudan because it's literally the only way to get the cash there, that they haven't got the infrastructure in place. And we know as soon as that bag of cash hits the ground, People, unfortunately, do put their hands in it and it's distributed then amongst, you know, maybe a corrupt few and then a little bit trickles down to the people who really need it. But with the platform and the technology that we've built, we prove that we can bypass all that. And I'm delighted to say that we've been doing it since 2015. Brilliant. Niall, unfortunately, we've run out of time. That 33 minutes and 11 seconds went very quickly. Um, Thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, you can find out more about ATEC. I absolutely love this. I think this is brilliant, and it is um, it is so needed. It can, it'll cut out enormous amounts of money that goes to third parties across the world. And it doesn't matter whether it's remittance, whether it's um, entitlements or whether it's aid or whatever. There are always people with their hand in the till, and uh, unfortunately, they get away with it. If you want to find out more about both Aid Tech, which is A-I-D colon T-E-C-H and Nile, go to aid.technology. That's A-I-D dot technology, where there are a plethora of stories and articles. And uh, Nile, thanks very much. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the 416th Bob Pritchard Straight Talking absolutely no bullshit business radio show coming to you on voice america business network and we're broadcasting today from our studio on the shores of sydney harbour in australia i'm looking up the harbour as we speak there are lots and lots of boats yachts and a lot of people having a good time so i don't know who works in this country if you go past any coffee shop in sydney or melbourne any day of the week any time of the day they are absolutely Shock-a-block full. So I don't know who the hell does any work. And that leads me into this story that, good news, a four-day work week is on the way. Some of the world's most productive countries like Norway, Denmark, Germany, Netherlands and a whole bunch of others 
on average work 27 hours a week. They're also among the top 10 countries with the highest annual salaries and the highest productivity, even though people work less hours. On the other hand, Japan, which is notorious for people working massive hours, ranks at 20th out of 35 countries for productivity. So they're doing a hell of a lot more work and they're much less productive. And you can thank your new robot co-workers for the change. Um, Technological developments make it possible for employees to accomplish the same amount of work in less time and still ensure that the customers are supported. You know, AI technology will, it's going to disrupt every aspect of every industry in every country. It doesn't matter what it is. And this includes how and when we work. Within the near future, we're going to see an increase in remote and more flexible work schedules like the four-day week, with businesses forced to share the benefits of new technology with their employees. If you notice around the world, um, the big companies are going to be forced to have some form of um, profit sharing with not only employees but with more with shareholders as well because uh, the big guys are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, bringing in more technology and more AI, generating more profits, and the poor old workers and shareholders are getting screwed. Now, Perpetual Guardian, which is an insurance company in New Zealand, is already realising the benefits of a four-day work week. It's in Their four-day work week has impl- in- <laughs> increased employee satisfaction, company commitment and teamwork, work-life balance and company loyalty. Employees also experience less stress and it doesn't harm their productivity or company output. So a four-day work week means the employee would work around 28 hours over four weeks and have a three-day weekend every weekend. I've tried this two years ago. It's terrific. It's It's amazing what a difference an extra day at the weekend makes. Now, many companies internationally are already trialling the idea with promising results, so I think you can look forward to it happening. In the UK, 2 million British are not currently in employment due to childcare responsibilities, and 89% of these people are women. A four-day work week would promote an equal workplace as employees would be able to spend more time with their families and better juggle care and work commitments. If you're both working three days a week, uh, four days a week, then there's six days where one of you can be with the with your child. It makes a hell of a difference. And from 2015 to 2017, Sweden conducted an extensive trial over a shorter work week with nurses, and the results were positive, with nurses logging less sick days, reporting better health and mental well-being, and greater engagement, and they arranged 85% more activities for patients in their care. So that was a massive success. And countries with shorter working weeks also have a smaller carbon footprint because you take all those cars off the road, you've got a whole bunch of buildings that have got less lights switched on and using less power, less computers, less everything. And a trial conducted in Utah for government employees showed that um, during the first 10 months, it saved over $1.8 million in energy costs alone and a reduction of 12,000 metric tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. So that's just working one less day a week. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, 
You're taking up too much space. Get out of the road. Let somebody who wants to be successful get around you. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Any bastard can do the ordinary. Anyone can be ordinary. And if you're always trying to be normal and fit in, you'll always be boring. You'll never know how amazing you can be. We had a big party last night for about 120 people, most of them in the entertainment business, and they're all absolutely unbelievable unboring people. In the meanwhile, have a great week. Continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard broadcasting today from the shores of beautiful Sydney Harbour in Australia. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.